Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Davey, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm all the better for talking to you. All the better for talking to you. It's been a long time. I was figuring out the other day, it's been almost four years, like to the week. It was in Birmingham when you were on tour with the Eagles. Um, it was a week before um, you know what, and that was the last time I saw you and we hung out. And then the time before that, because obviously I'm thinking a lot, as I'm sure you are and everybody is at the moment, because shows aren't a thing. I keep thinking back to all the amazing nights that I've spent, you know, with people like yourself backstage at venues, catching up, having a drink and just really soaking up the lifestyle that we've been blessed with for so long. And obviously when it's taken away, you realize more than ever how grateful you are to have experienced all the the amazing things that you have. The time before that Birmingham show was one of my favorite nights ever. It was when you played in London at the, uh, where was it? Coco, right? And there was... Duff McKagan was there, Alex Turner was there, Matt Berry was there, Iggy Pop was there, all out to see you guys. You remember that night? Oh, of course. Iggy Pop barefoot with his uh, feet hanging over the railing. Of course. <laughs> how, how can you forget that? He rolled up, didn't he, with a leather jacket open, shirtless, beautiful woman on his arm, 
And, and we'd done an interview just before he arrived about your top 10 Iggy Pop songs. And then at the end of that chat, you were like, oh, well, Iggy's actually coming down tonight. <laughs> and then sure enough, in he walks. Amazing. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really been a sad time to not be able to uh, go out and play or actually even hardly go out. You know, I, I haven't really been doing a whole lot other than just working on music at the studio and, you know haven't really seen a lot of my friends, which is a drag and, you know, obviously haven't seen you for a while. So I know you took some time off from Eagles. Were you playing shows with anybody else? Like when was the last time you did do a tour or, or played live? Uh, I've been playing a lot with the Mojave Lords and Earthlings. We were playing, we actually had a birthday show lined up at Pappy and Harriet's on June 7th. And of course, that didn't happen, but we had we had a lot of stuff set up for, uh, you know, March, April, and May, and all that kind of just, you know, fell apart because, you know, no place was open yet. So, I think the last time I played, we did a, we did a uh, Mojave Lords Earthling show at Pappy and Harriet's in, I believe, February. Right on. Well, I actually saw that ex- exact same bill. We're going back some years now, maybe five years, I want to say, when me and my friend Cav came out to the rancho, came to see you, and then me, you, Cav, and Bingo drove in one of your cars out to Pappy's, and it was, I think that same bit, it was Mojave Lords, Earthlings, at Pappy and Harry, it's my first time there. Uh, what a joint. What like It's just like a wild cowboy spit and sawdust rock and roll joint, isn't it? One of my favorite venues I've ever been. Yeah, it's one of the best ever it's a, it's a really uh, unique place and the owners are super cool and in fact i told bingo i was going to be talking to you today and he said to say hello oh amazing please give him my love back i can't wait to see you guys again man as soon as flights are allowed back into the u.s i've definitely got a trip planned because i've got a book coming out this year davey and it's with um an la-based publishing house and i was hoping to have my book launch party out in la at the viper room um, and then I was hoping to tie that in with, with a visit to you to catch up with you, but it wasn't meant to be this year. But, um, yeah, I'm going to do a second book, and that will be out next year, and hopefully by then things will have, have eased off a bit. Yeah, but please do uh, give my regards and love right back to Bingo. So you guys, we're going to go back in time in a bit, Dave. I'd love to know all about your life and journey, but whilst we're on the subject of Bingo and, you know, the desert and, and what's going on now, for a while now you and him have been developing – your own mezcal, right? The Rancho de la Luna mezcal. Um, I can't wait to try it. Tell me all about this this new <laughs> business venture of yours, Davey. Well, it's pretty interesting. Uh, a while ago, Bingo suggested that we start our own tequila company because uh, so many people drink tequila. And then we, we were told by a friend that uh, maybe – they could introduce us to some people that made mezcal and we got involved with them and that turned into a huge disappointment. Uh, they ripped us off and it was was a really horrible experience, but it got our toes in the water. And, uh, once we finished settling our legal woes with the people that, uh, ripped us off, we got together with some really cool people and we just relaunched, uh, last month. So we've only been going again for, uh, for a month and things are going way, way better. 
we the first time we started out we we were going really good and we were having a great time going around and seeing people and having parties and hosting things and we were setting up lots of really cool things but then our partners turned out to be thieves and hustlers and they hustled us so what, what happened then did they did they nick the trademark or rip you off for money or what went down yeah they nicked our trademark in mexico motherfuckers Oh man, you don't even know. <laughs> it was it was horrible, man. There were was, were was, you dealing with some cartel folks, Davey? Is that what it was? <laughs> no, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't that cool. They uh, <laughs> they were just some some low life that just ended up screwing us over. Oh man! But we but that led to us meeting our our lawyer, who's super super cool, and he introduced us to some other people. And now we've got an a even better product and we're working with the best team possible and things are going gangbusters. You know, they've opened way more doors than we had open, but it's, it's just a shame because bingo and I were, were traveling a lot and hosting events and we were really having a, a lot of fun. That was, you know, kind of the, one of the main reasons that I stopped playing with Eagles of death metal was we were doing so much and having such a good time doing that. And it was cutting into the time I could, you know, play with those guys. So, what, so were, you, were you playing live or was it more just like hosting parties and being like the, the face and the... Well, we were doing both. We were we were going to like smaller bars and restaurants that didn't have live music and we would DJ and host parties. And then Killer. Uh, we would go, go to venues where our friends and other people had live music and we would play Mojave Lords or Earthlings or whatever and just host these events. And that, I mean, we're going to continue doing that as soon as we can. Um, another great thing that we started from it, there's a great charity called Sweet Relief, and they help musicians that don't have health insurance. And our neighbor and great friend Victoria Williams started that uh, a while ago. And we put together the Sweet Relief Music Hour, and we had our first shows happening in march and then that got kind of sidelined but we just filmed the very first episode at the rancho we just did it here with victoria williams who started it and uh it's called the sweet relief music hour and it, all the proceeds from that go to helping people that don't have you know musicians that don't have uh health insurance and they've helped everybody they helped fred drake a lot who i started the studio with they helped bingo they helped everyone almost anyone that you can think of that i know they've helped a lot and i know you know so that that is a really big that was kind of our favorite thing that happened from the mezcal was helping sweet relief because they've helped so many and they continue to help people well i think in the uk we obviously have our own problems but we take for granted i think the the free health service that this country offers and obviously in a country like america where that's not just a right it's not just your god-given right to live in that country and be taken care of you have to pay um it's a real struggle isn't it financially for creative people especially right now if you don't have any income and you get something go wrong with you those medical bills can yeah. cripple you can't they no pun intended oh my gosh yeah you know like i i haven't had insurance since the early 90s i haven't been able to afford it you know and i i, I you know I, I don't make a very comfortable living you know i worked hard and a lot of the money i make goes back into the studio and whatever and to the businesses but uh, 
I don't know many people that can afford health insurance over here. So everyone just kind of, you know, hopes that they stay healthy. And if they don't, then they rely on people like Sweet Relief or, you know, any other. There are a few other, you know, cool charities that help people. But, yeah, it's, it's rough, man. It's, it's expensive for someone like me. I, I'm approaching 60. I'll be 60 next year. Are you really? <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, yeah, man. I'm an old, <laughs> old. <laughs> but, like, for me, for, for health insurance, I think it's probably close to, like, a 1000 bucks a month for decent health care. Yeah, that's crazy. So, that's like rent money, isn't it? That's like what you pay for a decent apartment in London. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard on top of all the other things. And like you said, especially now that people are out of work, you know, uh, people are getting a little bit of help. Some, you know, some people are getting a little bit of unemployment. Some people aren't. Uh, a lot of my friends, almost everyone I know is either a musician, an artist, or they work in the entertainment field as you know even a restaurant or whatever you know and almost everyone's out of work right now because you know service industry jobs are just almost non-existent they're starting to come back a little bit especially in a few states but it's really it's really hard times as well as i mean i'm sure over there it's it's rough as hell yeah, well, it's the same for me. I'm in the same boat. Everybody, apart from my old school friends, everybody who's in my day-to-day life now is, as you say, either like a musician in the music industry or in the hospitality trade, either a barman or a bar owner or a waitress or, you know, they're a sound technician or a guitar tech or whatever. Everybody that I know is is in those lines of work, events and hospitality, and, you know, they're the ones that have definitely been hit the hardest. Um, it sounds like you've been doing some cool, productive, positive stuff, though, even whilst the the shutters have been clamped down. It sounds like it's, you know, it's all go your side, which is cool, man. That's reassuring and, and good to hear. Well, you know, we're trying our hardest, you know, the, the cool thing is, you know, the mezcal did get going and we are able to continue doing the sweet relief music hour, which will help a lot of people. Uh, the studio, I haven't had any sessions since March because, I'll bet, you know, yeah. it's, no one's really wanting to get together in a small space but uh i've been working on lots of stuff we've been work. we finished the new mojave lords we're getting ready to work on some earthling stuff I, I haven't even really had anyone over here until we did the sweet relief music hour and everyone got tested and as soon as the negative test came in we were able to get together and work which is cool and you know just trying to trying to keep it together but you know everybody's you know, we're trying to at least stay positive and try to create as much as possible. I've written a lot of, a lot of music and, you know, we'll see when we can all get together to finish it. Amen. And I look forward to coming out and seeing you and drinking some of that mezcal on your porch, man, and soaking up the oh. the desert vibes with a nice glass in hand. <laughs> oh, man. You are way overdue for a visit here, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> we we get back. Maybe you can do a, a book release at Happy Harriet's and we can we can have a couple of bands play and uh, make a bunch of mezcal drinks for you. Fucking A, man. That would be the dream. All right, consider that on the, the list of things to do once the world reopens. Um, so oh, Dave, I'm on it. I'm on it. I've been doing some digging on you, my friend, in the lead up to today, just out of interest. And there's so much about your life that I don't know about. I'd love to get into it 
with with you today. Uh, well, as much as we can cover, there's a lot. Um, so you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Am I right in thinking that? That is correct. So that's where that hospitality that you exemplify comes from, that old school Southern hospitality, right? Because you are one of the most like generous, hospitable people that I know. And does that come from your upbringing in Memphis? Did you grow up kind of in a household that was open doors, cookouts, that kind of traditional idea that you have of, of Southern living? Was that your life growing up or... Yes, absolutely, and I uh, certainly appreciate the kind words there. I, I try to, I try to be as hospitable as, as I can. But yeah, I grew up in, in the South, and that's kind of what you did. You know, uh, a lot of people didn't have a lot, so you just kind of came together and shared. When I was a kid, like when I was uh, up until I was seven, I lived in Arkansas, and uh, on Sundays at at this big, it was like a metalworking place. Mm-hmm. Everybody would show up and uh, with everything they caught, all the fish they caught and whatever, and they would have this big party, a fish fry every Sunday. And it was Sunday afternoon. And and that was kind of my first experience as to, you know, like a whole town. Because the the place I grew up in until I was seven was 243 people. So everybody would just (laughs) and and throw together and have a great party. So that was where I kind of learned that. And then when I got into Memphis, you know, like it was kind of the same thing, not quite, you know, it's just a little bit bigger of a city, but yeah, I grew up hanging out with a lot of my friends and we all, you know, I started playing music pretty, pretty young, not super young, but when I was 15 and immediately started playing with friends. So that, that was a good way to get together and, you know, share stories and, and have fun. Well, I mean, you look at the musical history and heritage of that city, right? And obviously you had Sun Studio and Stax and the amount of artists that came through those labels in, you know, the 50s, 60s, even going into the 70s. Obviously you were born, what would you have been born then? 1961, if you're 60 next year. So you would have been too young to kind of be a part of that. But did that scene linger? And as you grew older, did you notice the the afterwaves of all of that soul and rockabilly and that music? Was it entrenched in the town, in the local kind of music community? Did you see that or had things moved on by the time you were old enough to to be aware of that? No, obviously, you know, like, uh, obviously, you know, everybody was aware of that. That's, you know, a big draw for the city. And also, you know, in the in the twenties through the forties, you know, you had a lot of giant blues greats coming through, you know, Memphis was a, was a big blues town too. So it was pretty steep in very cool music. And, and, you know, even in the seventies, we, you know, we, we still had a lot of people coming through the bar had big hits and, you know, it it was a place where everyone from ZZ top to the cramps and whatever, you know, come to record. And I actually had a, a friend that worked at uh, Arden Studio, and this was probably in 1977 or 78, and we all, a couple of us worked at Peaches Records and Tapes, and one of our buddies was a janitor at Arden Studios, and he called us up at about 9 o'clock, I think we got off of work at 10, he said, look man, I've got the, I've got the late shift tonight no one's in studio B come on down. I've got studio B for a couple of hours from midnight on. So we got off work, went to Arden and we, uh, 
got to record a song there and that was in the bar case we're actually in another studio working amazing and, uh yeah it was you know it was a very interesting town to 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 come up in but yeah every you know everybody was aware of of rockabilly you know sun studios was still there Arden uh studio was you know really going gangbusters at that time because they were everybody was recording there people were coming from all over the world to record at Arden and so yeah and there was a great scene there there was a really cool music scene and I started playing out in like 78 79 and we uh and there was a really cool scene that kind of was punk country uh, new wave all, all everything kind of combined at once in Memphis and there was there were a couple of cool places that you would play and lots of really great people Alex Chilton I was, was going to say was Big Star a big band and you know was Alex Chilton a key figure in the scene did you right. ever did you ever have like any experiences or encounters with him Oh, oh yeah of course we were really good friends we Amazing so so he played with a band called Panther Burn, who still play around. Pat Falco still plays around. And uh, I remember going to see them one night, and Alex was playing guitar, and it really influenced my whole style of guitar playing and, and everything. And then we started playing, and he he sometimes played bass with, with a band called The Modifiers that I played with. And uh, Big Star was, was really well-known amongst, like, certain people but like he was very well known for the box tops because they had huge number one hits and big star never really got that big you know like later on they influenced everybody because they were such a great band but we played lots and lots of shows together and hung out a lot and in fact uh one of my one of my favorites is we are my band modifiers one of our first out-of-town gigs we drove to new orleans to play a show and it was right when Alex had moved to New Orleans he was a dishwasher at uh, the court of two sisters and uh, we stayed with him but the people never showed up to let us in the, the club to play so we sat across the street at the bar waiting at, at a bar to, waiting for them to open and uh, we just progressively got drunker and drunker until we realized the people weren't going to let us in the bar so during this time, we'd met this group of girls who said they knew of a bar across town that we could play at. So we jumped in our van with Alex, and we drove across to this place called the Rose Tattoo. Amazing. And it was <laughs> right across the street from Tipitina's, and it was like a little bar, you know, uh, mostly older people. And uh, the girls talked the owner into – she was super nice, older lady – uh, talked her into letting us play some songs for free drinks. Uh, and our, our our singer had gotten so drunk, we couldn't wake him up. So Alex said he would sing. So we ended up playing a bunch of stuff. We did uh, we did, we did did some box top songs, some Elvis and stuff. We, we did about five songs. And then the, the owner told us we were scaring people out of our bar, so we had to quit. <laughs> but, that, but, that, but that night, we went back to Alex's house. And he had a an open tuned guitar, and it was open tuned to the the Spanish G, which is what Keith Richards used. And that, and he he showed me some slide guitar that night. I'd never done open tuning or slide guitar. And then you fast forward uh, 
to when I started playing with Eagles of Death Metal, it just so happens that that's the tuning Jesse plays in. Every every Eagles of Death Metal song is in open Spanish G. So I was I was able to kind of figure out the songs pretty quickly because I was familiar with that tuning from Alex Chilton. So that's kind of a long story, but that's that's how I got into you know like I I knew Alex really well and he got me into some really cool tunings and different styles of guitar playing well dude it just sounds like such a wild fun free time as well which we're obviously you know forget about covid even like in recent times it feels like the red tapes come in a lot more and it's just not like that anymore is it you can't just roll up to cities meet people get introduced to a bar owner play that night like that kind of freedom and, and naivety and, and, and spontaneity and danger and excitement that was just clearly there in abundance in those days. I feel like a lot of that's gone now. Not to be like the grumpy old guy, but it's, <laughs> it's, it sounds like a very wild, free, fun time. Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, like at the time, there were these giant empty mansions that were in disrepair in Memphis. And like a lot of the guys from that I played with they had a house that was, I think it was like probably $300 a month. And it was literally like eight bedrooms and two of them you couldn't go into because, you know, they were just, the floors were falling apart and stuff was growing in them. <laughs> and, uh, but we could, we could rehearse there. So, you know, you had like five or six people paying 40, 50 bucks a month to live in a house that you could live in, rehearse in you know, have parties in. And I don't know in cities how often that happens anymore. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure it does somewhere, but you know, uh, it's, it's when, when I was a kid, definitely that was more, more, uh, happening than not where, you know, just a bunch of people lived in these great houses. I remember going to San Francisco for the first time in the early eighties and, same thing these kids would have this giant victorian mansion you know that was and that's where you would stay you would stay with these like six kids that were renting this giant house but now those houses a house like that if you had the whole house would be like you know twenty thousand dollars a month or something yeah and as you say like when it's affordable that is conducive to creating art isn't it because you're not worrying about paying your bills so you've got the space you've got a roof over your head and then you're free then to just use all your time to play about and hone and develop your skills and now i think so many artists have to like get out and and make the money to pay rent and then there's less time to be creative and it's just, yeah, man, like <laughs> in so many ways, I think the party's over. But hey, you, you sounds like you very much caught it, dude. It sounds like you had some yeah. some good time. So what took you originally out? You mentioned New Orleans there. I gather you kind of end up there a little bit later on. But um, what takes you out to, to Hollywood and Los Angeles out west to begin with in the early 80s? Well, we were the, the band, the modifiers that I went to New Orleans and a couple other small cities with, uh, we played this really crazy show opening for the gun club in Memphis on my mother's birthday, strangely enough. Why was it crazy? Just because. (laughs) Well, it was crazy because I took my mom out to dinner and took her home and she wasn't supposed to come to the gig. You know, that was kind of our dinner night. You know, she didn't really come to our shows very often, but, uh, we, so I dropped her off 
and me and my girlfriend and a bunch of the guys in the band took acid and <laughs> they we went it. to the and we and we played this show and the crowd hated us and me and the guitar player were both on acid and we were and the singer was so drunk he was being really crazy uh, I guess this isn't a good way to tell kids how to have a band. <laughs> but at the time, you know, this was like 1982. Or it worked for then. It worked for then. <laughs> yeah. But uh, our, our, our guitar player just went on this super hate rant. I'll never forget, like, you know, how much he hated all the people in the audience because they hated us, you know. And we were just, we we're kind of doing like rock, but noise rock and, I was doing like lots of loud feedback and anyway, so we get off, we finished the set and we get off and there's my mom with my brother. And, and luckily she rarely drank, but that night she had drank. So she didn't quite realize the whole drunken hate fest thing going on. She just <laughs> thought it was, she was like, Oh, you guys are really good. You know, she had a good time. So, and, so anyway, the, the gun club plays, they're amazing. And, uh, what a band. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The best, man. I love them. And they were one of my favorites at the time too. So Lanigan yeah. talks a lot in his book about his, his absolute love for that band and for Jeffrey in particular. Oh my God. Yeah. So, well, what happened is they, uh, ended up, Jeffrey ended up staying with the singer and the guitar player from my band for a few days and we were all hanging out and he was kind of, uh, he was kind of Jones and at the time he was doing a lot of heroin and he was, he was really having a hard time because it was at the end of July and it was super, super hot and they didn't have air conditioning. And, but they, we all became friends and he, he was like, look, the last show on our tour is in LA on the American tour. You guys should come out and open that. And being, you know, 20 year old kids, I, I, I think I was 21 and the other guys were a little bit older, like 25, 26. And we, we were like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll drive from Memphis to L.A. to play a show. Well, you're probably so not jumped. even getting paid, right? You're just doing it for the crack. Oh, I think we got it. I think we got 100 boxers. <laughs> De right, right. Definitely didn't for the trip. <laughs> but I think we were just like, at the time, we were like, yeah, you know, you that's what you did. You went to Hollywood or New York. If you wanted a chance at really doing this for a living, you know, but you kind of went to one of those places. So we jumped in my 1974 Toyota Corolla station wagon. And it was just me, the singer and the guitar player. And we decided we're just going to go there. We'll find a drummer. And if we don't find a bass player, I'll play bass because I could play. I played bass in a couple of bands. And then if we can find a drummer, bass player, all the better. So the whole way there, we talked about how Fear had just broken up, and maybe we could get the rhythm section from Fear to play with us. And strangely enough, we pull into town the first night. We meet. I met uh, three girls that I ended up playing in bands with over the years. The very first night we're in town, uh, we met. Durf Scratch, the bass player from Fear, who said he would play bass with us. The 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 Fear's drummer would not do it because he wasn't playing with anyone at the time. He was kind of over it. But uh, Durf said he knew of a drummer. So we had one day to show these guys like six songs. We learned six songs. 
we opened for the gun club and uh a couple other bands but we were the opening band and people really liked what we were doing so we immediately got asked to play more shows while we were there so we ended up extending our stay and playing a few more shows who else did you play with anybody notable that i'd know uh, well, we opened for the Circle Jerk. Oh wow! They were friends of ours, and they had they had a show that they threw us on a bill. Uh, we played with uh, a band called Tex and the Horseheads, who were friends of ours that we met there. That kind of like that, and I ended up ended up playing with the singer from Tex and the Horseheads for a long time. So we played a couple of shows, and then uh, people were wanted us to play more shows. So what we did is we went home, we regrouped, we got our you know, when once we got back to Memphis, and we told people that we actually did well in in uh, L.A., then our drummer and uh, our drummer decided to come out with us to play some shows because at that point we decided that Durf would be the bass player since he was connected in L.A. You know, he knew people. Yeah, yeah. So, so our drummer who couldn't make the first trip because it was it was such a you know it was like. Do you guys want to open us up for us in a week in L.A.? So our drummer couldn't make it. Everybody else, we just quit our jobs and split. So we came back, regrouped, uh, rehearsed, went back to L.A., rehearsed for a couple of shows, and then we opened for Black Flag. We opened some shows for those guys, and then we had a couple of our own shows that we actually headlined because since we were an out-of-town band that gave us a little more you know, cred, for getting our own shows going. And we started, we kind of took off, you know, we started doing pretty well. We got, there was a, there was a movie uh, being made called, I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but uh, we got a couple of songs in this movie and it was, it was Alan Sachs who did rock and roll high school. And he had done welcome back Cotter and a couple of other things. So we thought it was, you know, this is going to be our big break. You know, it was always, uh, it was called Dubidio. <laughs> Brilliant, but we thought it was our, our big break. We're going to get into movies. This is our whole thing, and of course, nothing ever happened with that movie. But we ended up staying a little longer, and then we, you know, at one point, we all kind of ran out of money, and we were we were living with Durf in a one one room apartment. Like he would go stay with his girlfriend, and the three of us would stay in this tiny ass little little place. So we finally went back to Memphis and regrouped another time and decided like, all right, this time we're going to move out there. Let's get our shit together. And we all moved out. We got a house in Venice and we ended up living in LA. And that's how I ended up like staying in LA. It took, it took a couple of times because the first time we weren't really shooting for living there. We were just going to play the gig, but that immediately set us off on getting more things going. But L.A. was really, really cool. We, we had opened for so many L.A. bands that had come through Memphis that we were really good friends with Black Flag and Circle Jerks. And they were very, very instrumental in helping us meet cool people and get gigs, you know. What an exciting time Los Angeles must have been at that point as well. What an exciting place, sorry, at that time. Like, you kind of obviously had the alternative rock boom about to explode with Jane's Addiction and Chili Peppers and those kind of bands and obviously Fishbone and Guns N' Roses and then you had the punk thing like it must have just been fucking wild and so full of freaks and creatives and 
Was it evident as soon as you got there that that was the place you had to be? Like, was it just kicking? Uh, absolutely. You know, there were, it was so great because there were so many great bands. People were, you know, plus I was 22, 23 when I, you know, I was very, very young and, and ready to experience all this. But yeah, there was so much going on. There was so much great art. There were so many great bands. I mean, as, as, of all the bands that you mentioned, which are all great, there were so many great bands that no one's ever heard of either that we were playing with, you know, that, that didn't make it, that we just played gigs together. And there was a very great sense of camaraderie amongst all the bands. Everybody liked each other. If we were playing a show together, that was a great night for all of us to get together and have fun. There were so many clubs, uh, so many after-hours bars. You would, you know, you would play your gig and then you would go to an after-hours bar to drink. Or <clears throat> there was a one place called Ground Zero in the late later '80s that uh, of all of our friends worked at, and it opened at two in the morning and stayed open till ten in the morning, and they. <laughs> They sold like LSD punch and they had Coke that they would sell. I mean, it was fully, it was already illegal being open after 2 a.m., but they just added everything else. So you could smoke weed and you could do whatever you want. So though, we would play there a lot as well. So we'd play our regular gig and then go over there and play these shows. But yeah, it was, it was a crazy exciting time to be be in LA. It was it was amazing. Is Ground Zero the place that Fishbone sing about in that song Party at Ground Zero? Is that what that song's about? You know, I have you'd have to ask them, but I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, you know, they they used to play some really great shows. You know, we we were all friends too. Uh I in fact twice I saw Fishbone there were riots. I saw them play at the uh downtown LA street scene which they only had for like one year because there were giant riots but in the middle of their set there a, a riot started and then I saw them open for the dead Kennedys at the Olympic Auditorium and someone kept throwing stuff I mean it was a crazy scene there too someone threw a boot and it hit uh, Norwood in the head and he jumped off the stage to like he saw the guy that did it and when he jumped down, someone knifed him in the back. Fucking hell. And he he didn't realize it. And he got up on stage and finished the set. And, you know, somebody finally was like, dude, you're bleeding. And he, <laughs> he got off stage. But that that was like, you know, they were such a great live band. They would get people so worked up. I mean, they still are a great live band. And that's been forever. But, yeah, there were just so many bands like that that you'll you'll never have heard of that were equally as great. I mean, as there are everywhere in the whole world, every town and city has so many bands that you've never heard of because they just never did anything. But, you know, it's all, it's all about art for art's sake and music for music's sake, you know, just getting out there and doing it. I can only imagine the cast of characters as well, as well as musicians and artists. You've obviously probably got drug dealers, hookers, strippers, trannies, (laughs) hobos street pimps like the full cast of characters right oh yeah oh yeah man (laughs) we had we 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 were going to our gig one night and there was a pimp with a fucking samurai sword that thought i guess someone had fucked with his girls and he thought it was us and he was trying to cut us in half with his samurai sword one night i mean 
and that was just like a typical night in LA back then, you know. It was it was a it was a really really fun time, crazy and fun, you know. What was Tex like? Tex is awesome. She's still a great friend of mine. She lives in Austin, and I see her whenever I play. She's she's just a a very free, awesome lady, uh, one of a kind, and uh, wrote great songs, great lyrics, super super fun. And uh, we lived together, myself, her, her boyfriend, and uh, my friend Larry Mullins, who now plays with Nick Cave. He's played with everybody from Iggy and Nick Cave. And, you know, he's he's played with so many great bands, Swans. Oh, wow. And, uh, we all, well, we all lived together for a while. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, he's one of the greatest. He's, he's one of the greatest musicians and just the coolest dude, too. But we all lived together and we all had a great time. You know, he was even younger. By the time we were living together, he was the 21-year-old. And I think I was like 26 at that time. So he was like the baby. But we had a cool we had a cool little house in Hollywood that was super cheap. And we had a garage that we could rehearse in at all hours. And that was, you know, that's another thing that I don't know how many people can afford a house with a garage with a couple of people living in the house, you know. Yeah, especially not in L.A., Fucking hell. No. No. But <laughs> that was an interesting time for sure. What about this band, uh, the Ringling Sisters, that you were in? You did a record with Lou Adler, right? That's correct. In fact, Larry played drums on that album. There you go. And Tex was supposed to be on the record, but it was, it wasn't, it, it started as a, a bunch of girls doing uh, poetry. And, and it was like, that was the thing. It's like, we would all do poetry at these poetry readings and stuff, but they were, it was mostly females that would, that were started the Ringling Sisters. And then they decided maybe one of the girls had a boyfriend that wrote really great songs. They're like, well, maybe we'll do some, some songs. And then they're like, well, we're all friends. Why don't you play Dave? And I'm like, okay, cool. And they're like, well, we need a drummer, Larry. Why don't you play? So we all started doing these shows. And it was very, very mellow. It was kind of like the mamas and the papas. And everybody in the in the band had like punk rock bands. So this was a complete, you know, 180 for everyone playing these mellow songs. But we all loved each other. Everyone was super cool and fun. And the music was cool. So we started doing those gigs as well as our punk rock bands. And uh, we did one show. at a. It was funny. It was at a clothing store. And it was really one of our worst shows. It was one of those shows where basically everything goes wrong, but no one was like crying about it. We were all just kind of laughing like, oh, I broke a string, but I didn't bring us any backup strings for the guitar and, you know, that kind of thing. And it turns out that Lou Adler had sent his secretary to check us out and said that like, well, it was, it was interesting, but they were really cool. And so... He set up a thing for us to go to On the Rocks, which is above the Roxy. It's a private club and do a, a, a set for him. And he was like, I, I love it. I think we can do a great record together. We, we can do it at my studio in Malibu. Uh, and we all went for it. Unfortunately, at the time, Tex didn't want to do it. She, she didn't. She she liked everybody, but she thought it was, you know, it wasn't heavy enough. Yeah, so it wasn't a bit really too commercial. Yeah, it was too commercial, but 
we all were just like, well, fuck, man. You know, none of us, none of our other bands is getting signed, so let's do this. And and so we did a, a an album with Lou Adler, who is one of the coolest dudes ever. You talk about somebody you should interview, like that. Oh man, that guy. He's the dream he guest. Has, like he's Mister Hollywood royalty. Like he, if people listen to this, don't know that name. He obviously he owned the whiskey, right? But as well as that, he was involved in producing and or discovering everything from Cheech and Chong to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Carol King, Mamas and Papas that you mentioned a minute ago. Like that's some OG Hollywood royalty right there, isn't it? Oh yeah, the the Roxy, the whiskey that he also put on the uh, Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, wow. He was friends because he had done the Mamas and the Papas. So, you know, John Phillips and he put on the Monterey Pop Festival. They were friends with Hendrix and the Stones and everything. So it's, it's it, his life. Man, you talk about some crazy stories. That guy has the <laughs> best story. Did you what, ever go out with time? him and socialize with him and his Hollywood pals? A couple of times. Uh, we, we, he actually hired our band to uh, be the backup band for the 15th anniversary of Rocky Horror Picture Show. No. And that's amazing. Yeah, it was really, really amazing. With the full the cast. Everybody except for Susan Sarandon and Tim Curry, they, neither of them participated for whatever reason. But you had like Meatloaf from Richard O'Brien and. Oh, yeah. I got to play science fiction double feature, just me and Richard O'Brien. Oh, on man. But the funny thing is, is before the show, we decided that we were all going to take mushrooms. <laughs> so, we, so we all, and, and it, it was. It I'm was noticing a pattern here, Davey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of, the, some of the crazier nights of your life are involving. Hey, I, I, I fully back it, mate. I fully back it. I love it. <laughs> but it was, it was really funny because it was for 1,500 of the presidents of the fan clubs around the world. So it was 1,500 of the biggest fans of Rocky Horror Picture Show, all in drag. You know, they're, they're Rocky Horror drag. Uh, so were we. Um, and it was, it was one of the most incredible nights, you know, like, hanging out with everybody. Uh, Jack Nicholson came and Lou was like, Hey, you guys have any weed? Jack wants to get stoned. And we're like, yeah. So we, we all got to smoke weed with Jack Nicholson. And, you know, like there were so many stars there and, you know, I like, I'm a huge fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. So just Richard O'Brien, he is such a freaky, awesome dude, you know? Yeah. And everybody, everybody else in the whole cast was there except for, unfortunately, you know, no, Tim Curry or Susan Sarandon, but everybody else. It was really, it was an awesome evening. What a night. And yeah. o- only in Hollywood, right? Only only in Hollywood would something like that happen. And what an amazing place to be tripping on shrooms as well with 1,500 Rocky Horror <laughs> cost- oh costumed up fanatics. That's an incredible setting. I, uh, I just remember sitting with Pleasant Gaiman, who's one of my, you, you should interview her too, because she has, she honestly has more amazing stories than anyone I've ever met in my life. Like she, she was, she was a teenage groupie when she was like 14 or 15. And man, the stories with that, she, she's now a world famous belly dancer and she does a podcast, but you oh, should amazing. maybe interview because she has the best stories. But I'll just, rem- I just remember sitting in the crowd and we were tripping our balls off 
laughing so hard at what was going on. I was like, we've li- we've had so many. At that point, we'd already had a million amazing times together because she was she was one of the first. She was the first person I met in L.A. Oh, she was and there was, that night when you played with, with with the Gun Club. You said you met three girls that you ended up jamming with. She was one of them. She was one. Tex was one, and Iris Berry, who was also in the Ringling Sisters, was another one. Right on. But she, I was, we, I just never forget us laughing our asses off and saying, like, all right, this is it. How much weirder can it get for us, you know? And then, of course, <laughs> it just kept getting weirder year after year after year. But uh, yeah, that was that was that was a, a true highlight of of existence is playing that. You know, that was that was a really interesting evening. Well, I have to ask you, Davey, if, if that's the kind of stuff you're getting up to in Hollywood in the 80s, what makes you leave to go out to New Orleans? There must have been something pretty amazing on offer down there for you to want to leave. Well, I guess, well, so I think I think that was 1990, the 15th anniversary, I believe. And then a couple of years of slugging it out. I mean, the whole time I'm in L.A., I'm like, working at restaurants delivering pizzas, you know, because as everyone in the music industry knows, that's your best gig. It's, it's usually, you know, you, you can get off uh, for your gigs if you're working at a pizza joint because all the other people are musicians. So you just kind of coordinate your gigs over the, the next few weeks. And, you know, so, and plus it's a job you don't mind quitting if something better comes along musically. Yeah, it's so, not it's not a career, is it? No, it's not a career. And you know, like I'd been slugging it away in LA and I loved all my friends, I loved all my bands, but it was kind of it was kind of on the decline and you know, I also I was like now I was like 31 instead of 21 and I'd had a good 10 years of playing in LA and did the did the it, Ringling Sisters project not kick off into anything? major then did that just kind of come and go well strangely enough the day that our album was set to come out uh a&m which is what our blue adler had a a label called ode records and it was distributed through a&m because he had started he he was really good friends with herb alpert who had a&m and the day that our album was set to come out a&M fired most of their staff. It was just one of those like bloody Mondays or whatever, you know, where they just like their whole, they, they canned everybody and including all the people that were working on our album, like every single person that had anything to do with our album was fired. And at that point we just got buried in the shuffle because, you know, of all the stuff they were putting out, ours was like the small, small, small fry thing, you know? Yep. So, so it just got buried and nothing ever happened with that album unfortunately it's a it's a really it's a pretty cool album actually you know it's it's mellow the the poems and lyrics on it are awesome the songs are cool but yeah it, nothing really happened with that and we kept going like the girls kept going even after that but but what had happened is uh, a couple of people from the Ringling Sisters had a band called the Continental Drifters and they were going to New Orleans for, I think it was, they were they had a gig for Jazz Fest, and I I was I actually had played on and off in the band like I was an auxiliary member. If one of the guys couldn't make it, I would I would play. So we were all very good friends and we played together. And they were going to New Orleans for 
Jazz Fest, and I was I needed a vacation, and I I said, look, I'll drive and help you guys. I'll I'll you know I'll do whatever just so, just so I can go with you guys. They they had rented an RV. I was like, look, I got tons of weed and mushrooms. We'll have a great time. I'll help. I'll be the roadie, whatever, just just so I can go down there. So we drove straight 32 hours. We didn't stop. We just went. We just drove straight, singing songs. I mean, it was a it was a pretty amazing band. It had a uh, it had some really like uh, Peter Holzapple was one of the guys. He played with REM for a long time, and he had the DBs. He's a great singer songwriter. And Vicky Peterson from the Bengals was in the band. She's an amazing singer. And Susan Cowsill is was with uh, Peter Holzapple. They were a couple. And she's one of the best singers in the world. So it's a really cool band and really cool people. And we drove to New Orleans uh, straight. And we got out of the van at their manager's. Their manager lived in New Orleans. And we got to his office. And the first guy that opened the, the door was a guy named Jimmy Ford. And we immediately just clicked. We, you know, we became best friends. We're still best friends to this day. And um, we had a great time. We, you know, we, the New Orleans is the best, you know, especially in the early 90s. It was, it, it was like L.A., but even crazier. It was the Wild West. <laughs> really? Like lawless, dangerous, exciting, all of it. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so crazy. You know, so great. So we had a great time there. I met a lot of people, a lot of really good friends. I had the best time. We were there for like a week or so and, uh, went back to LA and we were hanging out doing our thing. And then Larry got hired to play drums with Iggy pop. And he was going to new Orleans to record the record at Daniel Lanois studio. And he asked if I wanted to go, you know, he's like, Hey, you, you know, do you want to cruise with me? And, you know, I, that way I have my van and, you know, you can help me drive. And I'm like, yeah, that, that'd be great. I can go see all these people I just met a few months ago. So, you know, I call up Jimmy Ford and he's like, Oh dude, just stay at my place. You, you know, totally welcome to just stay at my place. And I'm like, all right, great. So I jump in the van with Larry. We have a great road trip. We end up at Daniel Lanois' house. No one's there for a couple of days before this. We've gotten there early. So they let us stay at the studio, which is the most incredible place ever. The greatest studio I've ever been in. Has he still Just got it? Big... Is it still there? No, he, he sold it a long time ago, but the building obviously is still there. But it, it's right at the edge of the French Quarter. Right, right. It's like the most beautiful house. It had every cool instrument and microphone and piece of recording gear that you'd ever want. He had the console from Electric Ladyland that Hendrix had installed. That was his recording console. Shit. So, I mean, it was crazy. And so I hung down there with, with, with Larry and Iggy and those guys. So that was really, really fun. You know, like they would work and then, you know, Larry would call me up like, hey, we're going to go to so-and-so, you know, to a bar to dinner and meet us, you know, and I'd go out with this to dinner and stuff. So you've known, so, you've but, known Iggy years, Davey. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, in fact, I had worked a show the night before Larry uh, auditioned for him. It was a, it was a show that Iggy played and I ended up changing a guitar string for Iggy because he broke a string during the rehearsal. And we were talking, and 
I was like, yeah, t- tomorrow my buddy Larry's going to be, you know, auditioning. He goes, oh, man, is that that crazy dude that's been, like, stalking me? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> because Larry had been stalking him because he really wanted to play with Iggy because he was, you know, Iggy. So I was like, yeah, but you're going to love him. He's the coolest dude. He's a great, great drummer. And sure enough, the next day, Larry got the gig. And so when we were hanging out, you know, we, it, it was just great to be in New Orleans and hang out with those guys. But at the same time, I was hanging out with my buddy Jimmy. And, uh, oh, a really funny side note. Well, it's not that funny, but it's interesting <laughs> side note. Is on the way there, I called Jimmy. And I'm like, hey, we'll be there tomorrow afternoon. He's like, okay, just so you know, last night someone broke in my house. And I had to shoot him. Uh, and I haven't had, a, haven't had time to clean up the bedroom. But... Don't worry, you know, I'll get it as clean as possible before you get there. Turns out this guy, a murderer, had broken into his house, had a giant knife. Jimmy shot the guy's hand, blew off half the guy's hand. He left his fingers there. He ended up getting apprehended. It turned out he had murdered and raped people, like a total evil dude. And I had I got into the house the next day, and there was still buckshot in the wall, with blood on the carpet. Welcome to your and, sleeping quarters. Yeah, welcome, <laughs> welcome to like. He's like, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave the shotgun next to the bed. He goes, I've never had any problem, but this is one of those things. So anyway, <laughs> that's a crazy side note. So I so I'm hanging out with Jimmy a lot, and then it's time for me to fly home, and. uh Jimmy and I go out for one last night out on the town, and he dropped. He stops by this bar. He goes, "I got to show you this bar. This this is a really cool bar. This is where we, you know, we all hang out." And we walk in. There's only two people besides the bartender, and they're both of the ladies are his both of his aunts, and they're sitting there. You know, they they sound like the 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 sisters from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Super. Super cheap beer, cigarettes, like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he shows me this place, and, you know, he's like, look, I'm, you know, look at this this place. Should You know, somebody should be doing something. It's got this cool venue here and everything. It's this beautiful, beautiful place in, 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 like, a little neighborhood in the middle of nowhere. So takes me to the, takes me to the airport the next morning. I get home. You know, the next day he calls me. He's like, hey, man. I, that place that I took you to, they, they need someone to take it over. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, you know, somebody needs to run the restaurant. And then and I'm like, okay, I'll ask around. And he goes, no, no, man, it's got to be you. And I'm like, well, I, I would, but I don't really know much about restaurants, and, you know, other than delivering pizzas. And, you know, I live in LA. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, no. What makes you think I'm, like, I'm your I'm guy? <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, I'm telling you, it has to be you. And I'm like, Dude, I, you know, there's no way. And he goes, well, let me tell you what it is, what the deal is first. And I'm like, okay, what's the deal? And he goes, all right, so I showed you that place. It's a three-story building. He goes, the, he goes, if you take the kitchen, you don't get the bar because he wants the owner wants somebody to to get people into his bar. So for a thousand bucks a month, you can have the kitchen and restaurant. You can have the venue, which holds like 350 people, and you can have the two floors above it, which is like six bedrooms. Wow. And I, 
And I was, I was like, a thousand bucks? He goes, oh, yeah, it includes utilities. And I'm like, let me get this straight. I get the restaurant, the venue, the six-bedroom apartment above this place. I'm like, well, how am I, you know, how am I, how would I go about getting, you know, permits and stuff? And he's like, don't worry, that's all taken care of. I'm like, I don't, I don't see how this is. He goes, trust me. And I'm like, okay, I'll see you, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm going to book a flight right now. And I booked a flight, flew there the next day, met with the guy. Sure enough, man, it's, I look in the kitchen, everything you need, pots, pans, knives, plates, forks, everything except for the food. Got a walk-in cooler. Look in the venue. Some junk piled in the back. It's like, ah, it needs a little bit of work, but, you know, not too bad. I go up the stairs. They've, they've remodeled the second floor. Fucking amazing. There's, there's uh Four be- well, there's three bedrooms and uh, one giant, giant room. And then there's a closet that's big enough for a bedroom, for real, like a bigger than most bedrooms. Then there's a whole top floor that's giant. And he's like, yeah, a thousand bucks a month covers all utilities. I just need people to get into my bar. And I'm like, you're sold. Here's $6,000 for the next six months rent. I'll see you next week. And I flew home and I just quit everything. And that's, that's why, because LA had changed quite a bit at that point, you know, like, was that, was that to do with grunge and that? I I think, yeah, maybe a little bit, but mostly, you know, like also people had grown up, you know, like I was 21 when I moved there, yeah, 22, you know, and I was 31. So a lot of those same people that were really crazy and fun had settled down. The music change, music had changed. I I tried with so many different bands and like, you know, I was playing gigs where you'd make a hundred bucks a night or you know whatever two hundred if you were doing good, but it was it was it wasn't paying the bills. I was still going to have to work. Yeah. And this and this seemed like a good way to to get out of it. And and I loved New Orleans and I'd met so many cool people when I was there a couple of months before that I I really just wanted to get back there it looked like it like i said it was kind of the wild west then you could it, it really was crazy back then so and what an I amazing did. opportunity as well what like an absolute steal of a, of a bargain a thousand dollars a month for like i mean you could have rented out one or two rooms and then got that back just from that oh easily easily i mean i immediately got a friend of mine christian shiraku who is a friend of mine that had just moved to LA from uh, Switzerland and he was a great chef. And I, I was like, look, I can't pay you, but this will be our business. Like you come, we got, we got a place to live. We'll share everything. You know, and he's like, okay. So he came out and then my friend, Rich Siegel, whose parents uh, owned a restaurant in new Orleans. They still, he still owns it now. He owns it now. But at the time his parents owned it and I got him as a partner and then we asked a couple other friends if they wanted to work. They were like, look, we can't pay you, but you can keep the tips and we'll feed you and keep you, you know, give you drinks and stuff. And then we started playing there. You know, we, we had a lot of cool bands come in. Uh, one of our, one of our uh, local bands was our friend, John Stewart, who now plays with Wilco. He had a great band, still does with his sister, Lori called blue mountain. They played there quite a bit. We had, we were open, uh, from like midnight till six in the morning at the venue. So we would get 
even though all the places in New Orleans, you know, all the bars are open 24 hours, most of the venues are done by <clears throat> midnight, 1230. So you, you could get that all that business of people still wanting to dance and see a live band after midnight. Absolutely. I mean, there were other places that had late night stuff, but not that many uh, that had late music. But we were, we we did it. We were very successful. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there was a fire there about seven or eight months into it, and uh, that kind of the people that owned the building weren't insured. So, unfortunately, that was the end of that, which oh, now led to me moving back. But it was it was one of the greatest times of my life for sure. Do you th- do you think that fire was almost a metaphorical like the, the the times were too good it had to end? Was it a bit like that? <laughs> could be, could be, you know, like I don't I don't know. I I it, it was really sad at the time because I loved it. But we we lived there because uh, I'd already paid another six months rent, so I had the place for another four or five months. But we didn't have it. It, it had destroyed the electrical system. So I was living there and by June it was starting to get really hot and mosquitoes and we didn't have electricity. We, we kind of like ran an extension cord from the house next door and had a power strip so that we had two lamps and two fans in the place, but it was, it was crazy. And at that point, I got a call from Hutch, who you've met Hutch before. He does sound. He he doesn't anymore, but he did sound for Queens and Caius and. He's the guy, Jack yeah, White. man. Yeah. So does he still he, does he, he still live out in the desert with with you and Brian? Are you still all out there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 has a really great sound company out here now. So he does all the sound stuff up in the high desert. So he doesn't tour anymore, but he does all the the cool festivals and stuff here. But he and I have been best friends uh, since, you know, the, the mid eight, like the later eighties. So he knew that I was, uh, you know, just kind of hanging in new Orleans. He goes, Hey, you know, I'm going to Europe with Caius and they need a guitar tech. You know, I know you're not a guitar tech per se, but if you want to go, you know, it pays and it doesn't pay a lot, but, we can go to Europe and you can get out of there for a minute. I'm like, hell yeah, that'd be great. Cause I knew the Caius guys. We were all friends and I love their music. And, you know, Hutch was my best friend. So we were going to be roommates and just hanging and going, going through Europe. And so I went to Europe with those guys and ended up meeting some more people that are best friends to this day. And while we're there, we all became great friends. And when they broke up, that's when, Josh asked if I wanted to start Queens of the Stone Age with him. So it all kind of, you know, I guess it's all being at the right time. I mean, being at the right place at the right time and circumstances throwing you into different things, you know, like I I really hated uh, losing the restaurant. That was a huge blow, but then I'd never been to Europe and I ended up meeting tons of friends and then that led to me starting Queens of the Stone Age with, with Josh. And then that, that led to me coming back and doing earthlings with Fred and start, cause I started the studio when I was uh, in new Orleans, Fred had called me out of the blue and asked me to, if I wanted to be a partner in his studio in Joshua tree. And I just said, yes, not knowing I would ever actually be out here again, but it just seemed like the thing to do. 
So yeah, everything just kind of works for a reason. As, as sad as I was that that didn't happen, I'm I'm where I'm at today, and I couldn't be happier about that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dude, it's so wild. Like, as you say, there's definitely an element of the luck of the draw and right time, right place. But I also truly believe that good things happen to good people without being too hippy dippy about it and because you're such a rad dude and I, I didn't know any of these stories you've been sharing with me till today like that could have only happened to someone like you that just has something cool and positive about them because talk about falling from like you've basically like fell through life upwards do you know what I mean? If that makes sense, like every every day there's like, oh, there's this new thing that just oh, I might lead to something. And then, oh, my God, the next thing, you know, like it's this whole other amazing chapter and and none of it's planned. None of it's contrived. None of it's, you know, you haven't gone chasing after it. It's just really organically, flukily panned out that way. It's incredible. It's, 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 you know, I can't I, I can't say enough about how lucky I am how you know how fortunate everything has worked in my favor the funniest thing is i when i said jimmy ford's name earlier i got a text from him right when i said his name which is wow another one of really strange you know because we're still best friends we still play together in the gnarled tones which is a band that i started with him there and then i play in pink slip which is a band that his wife started to play uh, Mardi Gras parades and I still go down there and play with them and they have a band called Danola and I produce them and get them to come out here to record so yeah I mean I'm, I'm the most fortunate guy ever like I just you know I try to stay positive and I kind of learn from the, the restaurant burning because that was that was such a huge blow and I really thought that I couldn't recover after that, especially the night that it happened. And yeah. once, once I realized that it, it wasn't going to continue because the, the, the people that owned the building were like, we, we can't afford to fix it. And, you know, 
if you want to buy it, you can. I couldn't get anyone to buy it with me. So I was, I was pretty devastated at that point. But then as I look back, it's just like, you know, just stay positive and, you know, strive for life to take you to an even better place because of the misfortunes. I know what you mean as well, because, you know, throughout my life, things have happened. I've lost jobs and sometimes it's it's more than just a way of making money like my first big gig that i lost was working on kerrang radio and when i was on that station that was my life and everything was built around it and then they closed down and had to make load of redundancies and stuff and it's that same sort of thing it's like you're not just watching your business go up in smoke but you're watching this this life that you've built with these people that you love and then you just think oh well how can i come back from this how can i replace or move forward you know, when something like that has just been taken away so unexpectedly. It's hardcore, isn't it? But I think when you have those struggles in life, particularly earlier on, and you learn that life does go on, it stands you in good stead for further down the road, doesn't it? It's like, okay, things will work out. We've just got to keep our head down and and push forward here. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing I learned from the restaurant was, I really thought I, I, mean, I was so devastated. I didn't think there was any way to come back from that, but I'm, I, I couldn't be happier where I am today. So you just got to keep, you know, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So you just got to keep, keep your head up and stay positive. Amen, Davey. Well, dude, that was amazing. Some backstory on the catching. I feel like I'm really up to speed now with the, the wild ride you've been on if you don't mind dude i want to just go in on some of the iconic legendary records and bands and projects you've been involved in there's so many we won't get through them all but you just mentioned there that you know after that stint with caius around europe and, and caius come to an end that's when josh comes to you and and says sort of i'm i'm toying around with with this new thing here now some people might not know this but you were involved from you know the ground floor up with that band i wonder if you could just talk us through uh, in more detail, perhaps the the end of Caius, what Josh was up to, because he was up in Seattle for a bit, right, playing with Screaming Trees as well, and that's how the the, the Lanigan connection begins. And then he decides, I want to start this project, and you were the guy that sort of helped him early on get that going. Yeah, so he was up. He went to he went back to school after Caius, and he moved up to Seattle, and he started playing with Screaming Trees, and we actually played a show together, Earthlings and Screaming Trees at uh, the Roxy and we all hung out and he was talking about starting his own band and was, you know, was like, would you, you know, maybe I can do some stuff at Rancho. So he came down and we were working on that. He had, he had some songs and Fred was playing drums actually on the demo, on the original demos. And then, um, he was like, look, I think we should do it. Uh, I've got, I found this, this bass player uh and I'm, i think that brant might play drums brant bjork and if you you know you on guitar so we started we recorded a bunch of stuff at rancho originally with that and then he was doing some stuff up there with matt cameron and um uh john mcbain and they actually played a show or two i think up there and then we started doing more stuff, putting it together here and getting the songs more together. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how that happens. And then we started putting it together with, uh, the brand thing didn't come out. We auditioned a couple of people and then he went for Alfredo 
Yeah. And then he said he Nick uh all very back in the you know, in the fold. So but then we started rehearsing the four of us and that's how we ended up first starting touring with that band, that version of the band. I love the link between the Seattle scene and the desert scene. Like you wouldn't sort of see a lineage there that, that brings these two worlds together. But the more you delve into it, obviously Stone Gossard signed Queens of the Stone Age. Is that right as well? That's correct. Yeah. On his label. So nuts. And wasn't Dave Grohl, obviously everybody knows he was on Songs for the Deaf, but wasn't he kind of coming out that way and linking up and, and jamming with you guys slightly after Kurt passed just to try and escape all of that? Didn't he come out and, and hang out for a bit earlier on then as well? Yeah, Pete Stahl brought him out because he had played in Scream with Pete. And yeah. Pete was like, I think you should come out and, and meet Fred and Dave and check out the Rancho because, you know, I think you would enjoy it. So he came out and we immediately recorded a bunch of stuff. We released one song uh, and we, we have a ton of tapes of, of our jams, you know, we became, we, I had met, uh, I'd met uh, Dave before that too. Cause he was a big, he was a big Caius fan and a Queens fan. So, we had a great time. We, we recorded a lot of different things. So that was, that's how he ended up coming here for the first time. I think that was, it was within months of Kurt passing, I, I believe. Fucking hell. I mean, that's, I guess with your place, right? It seems to have been a place of refuge for a lot of people over the years. And, you know, having been there myself, there's, there's definitely something spiritual. There's a bit of voodoo magic going on there. And obviously because it's so isolated and out the way, I guess it must be, you know, you live there, so it's different for you, but I guess for a lot of other people, it must be like a place of, of retreat, right? Where you can go and regroup and, and kind of just get your, your head together and, and create. And I guess you must have seen over the years, a lot of people, you know, almost like a lighthouse out in the desert and people are just getting out there to, to, to reset and regroup. Is that, is that correct? Is that safe to say? Have you had that a lot over the years? Absolutely. You know, my first trip into Joshua Tree was on my first trip to L.A. with the modifiers. We drove through the park because our guitar player, Bob Ohm, had said, you know, back then you you didn't have iPhones and stuff. So you actually looked at the road map, you know, and he's like, oh, there's, let's check out this park. We're, we're, you know, we're, got, we're making great time. Let's just cruise through. And so we drove through and we all were blown away, you know. And then I didn't really come back until the the mid mid to late 80s i don't i think i just kept seeing it on commercials and i decided i would drive out i had a convertible same same kind of one i have now and just remember putting the top down and driving out here and you know re-falling in love with it and coming out here quite a bit and then when fred moved out coming to stay with him a few times and then when we started the studio that's when you know, I spent a lot more time out here and more people wanted to come and visit and record. And th- and back then there weren't a lot of people out here. Pappy and Harriet's was one of the, there were like three bars out here, Pappy and Harriet's, the circle bar, or I'm sorry, the winner's circle and uh, Joshua Tree Saloon. Those were like, and then there were a couple in 29 Palms, but the two in Joshua Tree, so there wasn't a whole lot of nightlife and not a lot of people it's changed considerably even since you were last here. I mean, you know, this is now the 
what they call the Brooklyn of LA. You know, it's like, it's, right. it's where all, all the people are coming out of LA because no one can afford a house in LA. And now that people can work from their homes more often than not, you know, everybody, you know, why would you pay $700,000 for a house in LA when you can get a great house, a better house for 200,000 out here. And so it's changed a lot. There's a lot more people out here. You know, when, when I, when we first started the studio, hardly anyone lived out here. Our friend Victoria Williams and a few of our friends. Uh, and then later people were like, Oh man, we love, we love Joshua tree. We'll just buy like our, or weekend house, you know, and then a lot of people were living in weekend houses, but now people are actually moving out here. There's a really, there's a really cool scene of, you know, a lot of younger kids are coming out here. A lot of cool artists, uh, a lot of cool restaurants have opened up a lot of really nice people. So it's, it's, it's a lot different. And, and even, I mean, I think the last time you were here was what, three years ago, four years ago, uh, five, 2015. Damn, has it been that long? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's definitely changed a lot since 2015, for sure. And you're and you, you're and, all and, for, you're all for it. You're on board. You like what you see. I do. You know, I mean, it it, it, it kind of sucks as far as like a little bit of traffic goes and a little more lights, especially in Joshua Tree. But uh, you know, that was bound to happen, man. It's, it's a beautiful place. Of course, people are going to want to come, especially. When it's so close to L.A., you know, it's an easy escape for people. I want to ask you about Rated R, Davey, if, if that's cool. Yeah. Like, that record is just one of the most fucking ferocious, phenomenal, incredible records of the last 20 years. It's so good. It still sounds so good. Was that the one you were the most involved with the creation of in terms of playing on track? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. That was that was really fun because we actually had been playing together for a while, a couple of years at that point. Josh had done the first album pretty much by just him and Alfredo. And then the second one, he and Nick came up and they actually stayed up here in Joshua Tree and wrote a couple of the songs. And uh, then I started joining in uh, on my part. And then we had Chris Goss come in to produce it. And uh, it was kind of, it was, it was a really interesting time because Alfredo had had a falling out with Josh, so he didn't want to play on the record. And so we brought in our friend Gene Troutman, who's still one of my best friends and one of the greatest drummers. And then they were trying other, you know, different people in for different things. But it was so fun recording that for the most part, you know, like there were some nights where, I mean, we were on a pretty tight deadline. So, uh, some nights it wouldn't be going as quickly as, as it should have been. And it got a little tense here and there, but for the most part, it was so much fun because we were just laughing and having a great time and experimenting, you know? And it, it was really cool for me because, uh, Josh wanted to include one of my songs on the record, which, which he did the lightning song and all the other songs are just, they were so fun to play and it, and it, it did really change a lot of the way people thought about harder rock. I think especially at the time. And it was just a good time to do that record. I'll never forget the first time I heard 
that the band it was off a free cd given out with kerrang and the song on it was leg of lamb and it just sounded so unusual and slinky and you know kind of a lot more effeminate but in a very dark kind of voodoo weird way and yeah it was just this crazy melting pot of amalgamations of all different influences and i I'd, I'd, I'd never heard anything like it before and then you get the record and there's you know everything from feel good here the summer to autopilot to lost art keeping a secret monster in the parasol like every song is its own little island and beast and curiosity and I mean, those two at that time, what was it like working up close and seeing that relationship, that songwriting duo of, of Nick and Josh? Because, I mean, for me, I like most of the stuff that the Queens have done over the years, but for me, those first three records are like the pinnacle gold standard. And I do think a lot of it is to do with that, the push and the pull and the interplay between Nick and Josh and what they both bring to the table and, and how they balance the other one out just when it comes to like a songwriting thing. Well, it was it was really great to watch that because it, those times we were having a lot of fun. We we were touring and having a great time. I mean, you know, w- when we toured together, it was it was me, Josh, Nick, Alfredo, Hutch, and Pete Stahl was the tour manager on a lot of those early tours, and we were touring in a van, you know. And I remember we played in uh, like St. Louis to like five people and. You know, it was it was a really ground floor start to that band. You know, it, first of all, the name he wanted a name that would kind of like hopefully draw some girls into it because Caius was mostly dudes. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and and, per- and, and perhaps piss off some more of the macho conservative metal brigade, right? In a way as well, poke them a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, watching them ride together was was super fun. I mean, we were all really great friends, and we were having we were having a blast. We were getting to travel the world and play music, and people really liked it. and And it picked up fast. It, you know, it was just like the first tour that only a few people were in a lot of the towns. You know, I, mean, I remember we pulled into Milwaukee, and it looked like someone's house. You know, we were like, "What is it? This is supposed to be a bar?" and it, it was just someone's house that they built a bar in the living room. And we were playing in like the, the basement, like pool room that someone had had. <laughs> it was, you know, like you, you played all sorts of weird gigs like that. So all those are really fun. And you're riding on the road too, because you get, you know, you got guitars and you got plenty of time. And it was, it was a very, very interesting time. And then recording the record at sound city was, you know, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, some of the coolest records ever are recorded there. It's it's a re- it was a really great studio. Everybody that worked there was super cool, and it felt it just felt really it was a giant honor to be to be doing that. And you know, and I still love that album to this day. I mean, I love all the albums; they all have their vibes. But that one that one is very special because it it did change the way a lot of like heavier bands were playing. I I, I think. But yeah, hanging out with Josh and Nick, writing was hilarious. Those guys, two of the funniest dudes ever. You must have had some amazing experiences on the road as well, like with other bands. What about kind of from a touring point of view, which which bands at that time were beginning to take Queens out before they became the headlining kind of big draw? You must have been on some big tours as the the support act, right? Uh, not so well. 
the one was really great was Ween took us out. And wow. They were one of our favorite bands. And they had taken Caius out. So we were really good friends with those guys. And just being around them, they're one of the best live bands ever, I think. I've never and seen them. I really want to. I love Ween so much. They oh just they God, just man. rarely make it over to the UK. Yeah, you know, I love them so much that once I uh, quit Queens, I they called me looking for a drum tech for a European tour, and I told them I would do it. <laughs> just <laughs> to hang, just I, to hang out with them. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I put, I put drum sets together. I get to watch you guys every night. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so that was that was a good one. They they had a couple of bands like they. They went out with a, on this really small theater tour with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, but I had already booked an Earthlings tour at that time, so I didn't do that tour. Uh, but for the most part, we were doing most of our own shows, yeah, other than the Wayne tour. And you saw, obviously, the band blow up, right? Did you did you witness that happen? As you say, it started oh. off small, you're grinding away. After that, after Rated R comes out, I know that wasn't quite the juggernaut that Songs for the Deaf was, but it was still a huge record. And did you notice like their, their fortunes and favors change in the moment? Oh, absolutely. With that album, for sure, because it got it got so much press because it was, it was like, you know, uh, journalists really loved that album. You know, so that that really helped considerably. With the songs for the Deaf record, you know the radio voiceovers. Did you record them at the Rancho, or was it all done in the studio at the uh, no, at Sound City? No, it, uh, that album was done at Barefoot Studios in Hollywood. Right, and we we all did them that night together. So it, it was, it was like, the case that everybody there, so there's like Casey Chaos, obviously there's Twiggy, there's Lux, Blag. You're, yeah. you're all there for one night together and, and doing it in one session. That must have been one hell of a night. Yeah, Lux wasn't there for that, so I don't know where he recorded his, but everybody else, I, I remember they made it into a big party. They bought a bunch of like booze and food and, you know, we, I'll, I'll just never forget how much we laughed that night because it was just, <laughs> fucking hilarious like because there's i mean obviously you hear what's on the record but you don't hear the other 20 takes of whatever was done yeah you know <laughs> but yeah it was that, that was a, that was the best part that, that that album had some i i was invited to play on some of that record and a couple of times i went down it was pretty tense i like a couple of times i i, I split pretty early because i don't i don't know what the problems were i think I, I don't know, but it it, it wasn't the happy-go-lucky, and I, I'm not saying the whole time, but a couple of times when I went, I I stayed for 30 minutes, and the, the vibe was so bad I split. But it made for a great record. Cause I I think it's the best. I think it's the best Queens like real rock, you know, album. That's because I was gonna say, you know, obviously the lineup for that one, you've got Dave Grohl on drums, you've got Lanigan in the mix as well. Uh, I was going to ask why you decided to step back and walk away from it, but was that part of it? Was just you felt like the the tides had turned and it wasn't that same fun experience. Obviously, you've got the rancho that you're living at and and running and doing that as well. But yeah, did you did you just feel like wow, things have changed a bit here? It's not for me. Well, I honestly it was it was it was kind of a mutual thing. Uh, I I was starting to do well. Also, when I was turning down tours opening for Smashing Pumpkins to go out and do Earthling stuff because 
Earthlings is my band with Fred and Pete, and I was a lot more concerned about doing that. And that was happening more often than not. And then uh, Queens were offered Lollapalooza, and I thought that was a really terrible idea. It started in Florida in July, and we were like the first band on the bill or second band. You know, it was, it was just like a, I was like, why, why would we do that? That's stupid, you know? We're better, we're better than that. And, and they really wanted to do it. And, you know, at the time, I think we were making like 200 bucks a week, you know? It wasn't even paying the bills. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, I mean, 200 bucks a week doesn't pay the bills. And then especially if you're on the road, you're spending it. And so I, I, I didn't really want to do it. And I kept saying I didn't want to do it. And finally, Josh was like, okay, well, then we'll just get somebody else to do it. And, and that was kind of the end so it was kind of on both of our parts I, I think it was a lot of me passing on certain tours and you know at the time too uh you know it's always more fun playing the music that you write than of course than what somebody else is saying like play this and play that and i you know um I think the best thing he ever did was to get Troy in the band too. You know, like Troy is such a fucking amazing musician and the coolest dude. So I, I think that was, I think he's a much better fit for that band than I was anyway. But I certainly had a good time for the, the, the years I did play in the band. I want to ask you just a couple more things before we approach the end, Davey, because, you know, we've been going for ages and I feel like I could talk to you all day, but we'll save some more for another time. Um, I wanted to ask about the experience of uh, making the Iggy Pop record out of the Rancho, um, because I gather you mentioned Troy there and it reminded me of it. Troy said that they started like rehearsing and, and jamming for the tour that they went on with Iggy like the day after Bowie died or something. Is that right? So was this around the time he was making that record as well? Or was that before or was that after? Uh, before. before. Before, for sure. That album was super, super fun to make because, first of all, all of us involved were huge Iggy fans. Like, yeah, of course. You know, and he's hilarious. And the sessions would start at, like, we would, I think we were meeting at the house next door, Josh and, and uh, Iggy were staying at the house that Hutch and I used to live in that's next door. It's, it's the guest house for most of the sessions. And uh, Hutch and his his girl, Amanda, were, were cooking for the sessions. And we would meet up there at 10 for breakfast. And we'd have this delicious breakfast. And then <clears throat> as soon as we were done eating, me and Mark and... Um, and the, and the rest of the dudes, uh, we would come down to the studio and get everything set up and going and, you know, mics up, turn everything on, make sure everything's working. And those guys would, would roll up, you know, around um, like 1130 or so. And then we would start recording at noon and go noon to five. And then at five, we'd have a glass of wine go up to the house, relax, listen to music. And, um, and then we would, uh, have a big dinner and we were done by like eight thirty, And that was, that was the, uh, you know, that was the day. It was so killer, you know? 
What was it like watching him just do do the Iggy Pop magic as well? It must have been amazing seeing that because obviously your place is people won't know if they haven't been there because it's this legendary place, but it's not massive, is it? It's very intimate. It's very small. What was it like up close? I know you've known him for years as well, but like working up that close and, and personal with the icon that is Iggy, it must have been such an amazing thing to witness and be a part of. Well, it was really great because everybody involved in that was, was super cool. You know, uh, Justin, who works with, with Josh, he was, he was helping me. Like he and I were like the dudes that would do all the gopher work. And then Mark Rankin, who's amazing and super cool. And then you got, you know, Dean and Matt Helders and Josh and then Iggy. So like everybody's on top of their game. Everybody's cool. Everybody's funny. Iggy's just right. You know, just having Iggy sit in my house, writing lyrics and stuff. And yeah, you know, it's everything about it was super cool. And it, you know, like you said, it's tight in here. It's not like, you know, this giant studio where somebody's in one room and you know, the, the control room, you know, basically my house is about the size of a control room at, you know, A&M or something. But yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't have been a cooler experience just to be around because it was a few weeks too. So, you know, like three or four weeks that we were all hanging out because they were, they were just writing as they went along. And it was, it was great. I remember uh, Josh had this amazing uh, booklet that Iggy had sent him talking about you know, how he had worked with Bowie and, and like, you know, how they, and I, I it was so cool reading that. Cause he was like, if we're going to do this record, this, you know, this is kind of how it, this is what I did with Bowie, you know? And that, that was really cool. But yeah, to see everybody on top of their game recording with Iggy pop in my house. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty uh, uh, surreal and amazing. What a life, Davey. What a life. Yes, sir. It's been all right, hasn't it? There's been some hurdles along the way, but it's been, on the whole, a pretty glorious, beautiful existence, man. And I, I consider myself grateful to call you a friend, dude. It's been lovely catching up with you. And it's been lovely hearing about the the backstory of Davey C. I had no idea about half this stuff. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I feel honored to call you a friend. You've always been a, a bright, beaming light anytime I've seen you, and I always love seeing you. And I hope to see a lot more of you as soon as things calm down around the world. Hell yeah, man. We're going to make it happen. I'm coming out, and you've given me the idea for book number two next year. If the world's back into you know, regular routine by then, the Pappy and Harriet's launch oh. show sounds amazing. There's a few cats well, from your world that are going to be in that book as well, yourself now included, now you've been on the show. But yeah, that sounds like the absolute dream. And if you, if you put it out there, if one thing I've learned from this conversation with you tonight, Davey, if you put it out there, you know, it comes back around, right? Yes, it does. And we'll make it happen for sure. That is one thing is Happy and Harriet has not closed. They have the outdoor. So they've, 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 I'm sure they're struggling hard, but they've, they've kept it going. So that's, that's one good thing. I love it. Davey, I think there's only one way we can end this chat. If you're, yes, up, sir. if you're up for it, would you mind doing the songs for the deaf sign off? David catching here, not saying good night, just saying. Dude, thank you so much, man. That was a beautiful talk. I really, really, really enjoyed that. I love you, Matt. You take care. You too, brother. Till next time, Dave. Right. Cheers, man. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.